0: Hello and welcome to Purdy's Podcast. Today we're discussing World War I and the Treaty of Versailles. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to Purdy's Podcast. Today, we're discussing World War One and the Treaty of Versailles that followed it, which was such a flawed piece that it led to World War Two. World War One is overlooked overlooked by Americans because we got into it late and didn't play a starring role like the other allied powers, Britain and France, primarily. Furthermore, Americans thought they were fighting a war to end wars and to make the world safe for democracy and were bitterly disappointed when this didn't turn out to be the case. In Europe, however, World War I is still the Great War and people in Britain and France, in particular, remember the terrible losses their villages, towns and communities suffered. Indeed, most towns have some kind of World War I memorial in these countries, which can't be said about the Second World War. The United States honored its war dead too, though people don't recall these sites much anymore. The Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum was built as a memorial to the dead of World War I. And Clover Field in Santa Monica was named after Lieutenant Greyer Grubby Clover. Grubby Clover, who was from Los Angeles, had volunteered to fight for Britain before the United States got into the war and was shot down in action over France in 1918. I remember strolling through the Rose Garden next to the Natural History Museum downtown with Avalon a few years ago and stumbling across a memorial to the 42nd Rainbow Infantry Division in Exhibition Park. Uh, and the memorial there is dedicated in 1935 by Los Angeles area World War I veterans. Of course, Pershing Square in downtown Los Angeles is named after the World War I general, the major American general in that war. The war lives on in popular culture in weird ways, too. You might recall Snoopy, Battle, Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron, in a battle of World War I flying aces. At the start of World War One, the opposing lineups were set. The Allies, Britain, France, Russia, later on Japan, not much of a factor, they stuck to minor battles in Asia, and Belgium pulled into the war because Germany invaded it. And they're later, the Allies are later joined by Italy, the United States, China, and a bunch of other countries. They were built for stamina. They could rely on the British Empire to rule the seas with their fleet, and the industrial potential and populations of the Allies far exceeded the central powers, their enemies. They just had to survive the initial German onslaught in 1914, and they had a good chance to win. The central powers... Germany, and Austria-Hungary, later joined by the Ottoman Empire, centering in Turkey and Bulgaria, they had a couple of major advantages. They were geographically linked for the most part, had the most powerful military power, Germany, on their side, and they had strong internal lines of transportation, railroads, and communications, which back then were mostly telegraphs and to a lesser extent telephones. They were landlocked for the most part. And once Britain's naval blockade kicked in, it would be hard to feed and clothe all of their people, let alone produce war war, uh, materials, the war plans for both parties, both the allies and the central powers. As Mike Tyson, the great boxer, put it, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. This certainly applied in the First World War. This called for Germany... Their plan called for them to knock France out of the war within six weeks and then send the victorious German army east by railroad to crush the Russians. Voila. The big problem with this plan was that it required going through neutral Belgium for German soldiers to swing far out to the west to the Atlantic coast to avoid the French fortresses on the frontier. When Germany invaded Belgium, Britain showed them the 1839 Treaty of London and said, Wait, remember this treaty? Prussia signed it back in 1839 and promised to protect Belgian independence. Remember? Germany, remember? German Chancellor bethmann Hollweg thought it was crazy that the British would go to war over this scrap of paper, but he had misjudged them. French planned to burst directly into Germany, taking back their beloved provinces of Alsace and Lorraine, and then cutting north to cut off the German invaders from the rest of the army. The Russians planned to mobilize as quick as they could and send armies against Germany and Austria-Hungary at the same time. It might have been better had they picked one or the other. Austria-Hungary planned to take over Serbia. Serbia, who was the cause of all this nonsense back in July, but who was now quite forgotten later in the war. Then Austria-Hungary, after defeating Serbia, would take on the Russians in southern Poland. The British Expeditionary Force, the BEF, landed in France in August 1914 and moved into Belgium to help protect it against the German invasion. Their Navy's main hope was to destroy the German high seas fleet and then strangle Germany in a naval blockade. The war in 1914, what happened that year? The Austrians tangled with Serbia for the rest of that year in 1914, August through December losing about 300,000 soldiers, and worse, many of their experienced officers. They finally beat the Serbs the next year, but no one really cared anymore. The world had moved on from Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and Gavrilo Princip, his assassin, was languishing in an Austrian prison, and would until 1917 or 1918, when he died of tuberculo- tuberculosis. Quite a forgotten man. The Russians invaded East Prussia in Germany, moving much faster than expected. France and Britain were thrilled and the Germans nervous, but wait a second. The telegraph was still a hugely important piece of technology then, and guess what? The Russians were sending uncoded messages messages to each other, and the Germans read all of them. So they knew precisely where the Russians were headed, and zip, they hurried to cut them off. At the Battle of Tannenberg on August 26, 1914, right at the start of the war, One entire Russian army, 125,000 men, was killed or captured. The other invading Russian army fled back to Russia. This was the last time, class, the German territory would be occupied by an enemy for the rest of the war. Back west, France's Plan 17, their offensive plan, was a wreck. The French took tremendous casualties, taking back Alsace and Lorraine, only for the Germans to push them back out. The Germans followed the Schlieffen Plan modified, invading neutral Belgium under howls of protest from the world, especially from Britain. Allies never let the world forget that the Germans had assaulted their small, neutral, helpless neighbor. And I've got a couple propaganda posters here on page four of the letter. From a military view only, Schlieffen Plan, the modified Schlieffen Plan, worked marvelously, with German soldiers making rapid progress through Belgium. There was only one problem. German General von Moltke changed the plan just slightly, making that far western edge of the wheel a bit weaker. This might have been why the Germans ground to a halt within sight of Paris, right at the Marne River. They were so close to taking Paris. They could have won the war right there in, in September 1914 at the start. But the French didn't play their part like little pieces on a German game board no french general Joffre left a small army on his eastern flank and threw reinforcements over to save his western flank and the french soldiers were rushed to the front by all the taxi cabs in paris the germans retreated and the war on the western front settled down into a stalemate that would last until 1918. the war became a world war pretty quickly Regarding Germany's colonies in Africa and Asia, Britain became allies with Japan in 1902 because back then they were mainly worried about Russia threatening their colony India. Now Britain watched nervously as the Japanese swiftly captured Germany's Pacific Island colonies at the start of the war. Japan then stormed Germany's rich port Shingdao in China at the end of 1914. Xingdao, like the like the um brand of beer if you've ever seen it at the store with these quick victories Japan then pretty much chilled for the rest of the war now Britain and France saw Japan as more of a threat than a friend and this would turn the Japanese against the western allies after the war africa was a different story forgive my pronunciation with the latin semper novi quid ex africa said a roman proconsul many centuries ago From Africa always comes something new. W.E.B. Du Bois pointed out that the new European empires in Africa were the something new of the late 1800s and early 1900s. And Europeans fighting over these colonies to control their great wealth, that was the main cause of World War I. The first battles of the war were fought in Africa, Togoland, and the last as well, when the Germans surrendered their last army there, as described below the Germans recruited very effective African units, Askari, in their colony in Cameroon and in East Africa. British, black African colonial soldiers, white South African soldiers, including uh, veterans from the Boer War, and Indian units defeated the Germans in most parts of Africa. Yet, the last German army to surrender in the whole war on November 25th, 1918, was General Paul Von Leto Vorbeck's army in East Africa. His German and African troops, and there's a picture of a German Askari soldier on on the page here, had held off the British British against overwhelming odds the whole war. And this was one of the most successful guerrilla operations in history. The African campaign is the backdrop of the famous film, The African Queen, with Humphrey Bogart and Katharine Hepburn, I put a photo on this page too. It should not be forgotten, though, that World War I in Africa was fought by black Africans on behalf of the European empires. The British were drafting soldiers from their West African colonies and sending them clear to East Africa to fight in places foreign to them, with great culture and language barriers. In French West Africa, potential soldiers fled to the British possessions because they knew the French sent their colonial units to fight the Germans in France. Few black Africans were eager to die in this white man's colonial war. And yet many, many did. Take a break there Um, in our next segment. We'll discuss the war and how it progressed uh, the next year in 1915. And we'll see you in that segment on Purdy's podcast. Thanks, and you're back on with Purdy's podcast. Back into the First World War and into 1915, with the Western Front in a deadlock and the Eastern Front not decided either, it's important to question why these countries didn't just stop fighting. There had already been tremendous losses. From August to October 1914, France lost one sixth of all its casualties in World War One, for example. Victory seemed a long way off for both sides. So why did the Allies keep fighting? They kept fighting because, number one, 10% of France's territory was still held by Germany, but it was the most heavy industri- heavily industrialized part of France, and the French didn't want the Germans to keep it. Second, Belgium was occupied by Germany too, and the British didn't want to stop fighting until Belgium was liberated. Third, Russia needed to win the war to preserve the power and prestige of Tsar Nicholas II and his Romanov dynasty. He had already narrowly averted a revolution in 1905 and faced serious political problems at home if Russia quit the war as a loser. Ironically, Russia's staying in the war guaranteed they'd have that revolution Nicholas was trying to avoid in the first place. Fourth, Italy joined the Allies on May 23, 1915. Italy had been allied to Germany and Austria-Hungary before the war, but check it out. everything. Italy wanted was in Austrian territory. Also, Italy depended on British coal for their industrial economy. Italy suffered millions of casualties and still got a raw deal in the Versailles Peace Treaty in 1919, which helped make Benito Mussolini's cause that much more popular in the early 1920s. Fifth, Germany thought they could knock Russia out of the war in 1915. They were confident they could do this, and then dispose of France and Britain afterward. Sixth, the Ottoman Empire joined the Central Powers at the end of 1914, which was a boost to the Central Powers. The Ottomans were trying to hold their empire together and feared the Russians, who wanted Constantinople. Seventh, Austria-Hungary fought on for basic survival. Losing the war meant the end of Habsburg rule and the end of their empire. But on the battlefield that year in 1915, there was no clear victory for either side. Poison gas as a new weapon. With no one able to break the stalemate, the Germans were the first to use poison gas in combat. One of the early attacks against the British in April 1915 is described below. The gas being used as chlorine gas, similar to the kind the Syrian government has been accused of using against civilians recently and the account goes like this suddenly over the top of our front line we saw what looked like clouds of thin gray smoke rolling slowly along with the slight wind it hung to the ground reaching to the height of eight or nine feet and approached so slowly that a man walking could have kept ahead of it gas the word quickly passed around even now it held no terror for us for we had not yet tasted it from our haversacks we hastily drew the flannel belts soaked them in water and tied them round our mouths and noses suddenly through the communications trench came rushing a few khaki clad figures their eyes glaring out of their heads their hands tearing at their throats they came on if ever men were raving mad with terror these men were what was left of our section still crouched at the support end of the communication trench our front line judging from the number of men who had just come from it had been abandoned And we now waited for the first rush of the germans but they did not come our biggest enemy was now within a few yards of us in the form of clouds of gas we caught our first whiff of it no words of mine can ever describe my feelings as we inhaled the first mouthful we choked spit and coughed my lungs felt as though they were being burnt out and were going to burst red hot needles were being thrust into my eyes the first impulse was to run. We had just seen men running to certain death and knew it rather than stay and be choked into a slow and agonizing death. It was one of those occasions when you do not know what you are doing. The man who stayed was no braver than the man who ran away. Eventually the allies manufactured gas masks, which I've pictured, pictured in the letter that were pretty effective against these sort of attacks. But soldiers were terrified of gas throughout the war. It's a family legend, and I'm not sure of its accuracy, um, that my great grandfather was gassed in the First World War. And when he came back to the United States, this is why he had all kinds of um, horrific personal problems and why my his son, my grandfather ended up in an orphanage. Uh, and I've always wondered if that's true or not. But certainly this is a new thing in war and a new sort of just terrible, awful terror. The Gallipoli Campaign, 1915. With the war in France deadlocked, the British Navy led by First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, brainstormed of ways to use the Navy to gain advantage in the land war. Churchill came up with a plan to send a fleet of old battleships through the Dardanelles Straits in Turkey, bombard Constantinople, now Istanbul, and forced the Ottomans out of the war, this would also open up trade with Russia too, which desperately needed arms and ammunition. It wasn't a bright idea on Churchill's part. Even if literally everything had gone perfectly, the Turks weren't ever going to surrender just because their capital city was getting shelled by battleships. Nevertheless, in went the battleships in between Turkish mines, fortress guns, and land-based howitzers A third of the battleships were destroyed the first day of the operation. The operation, later to be known as the Gallipoli Campaign, should have just been canceled right then. Instead, Churchill and the Army's Lord Kitchener uh, spotted an army in the area of about 70,000 men, including the ANZAC divisions, the Australian New Zealand Army Corps, ANZAC, and sent them by land, the Gallipoli Peninsula to knock out the Turkish guns protecting the sea approaches to Constantinople. But students, Gallipoli was a nightmare for these Australian and New Zealander troops. There's a photo of them in the letter. They were pinned down in the landing areas and just fighting for months for a toehold. There were 180,000 Allied casualties and 400,000 Ottoman casualties. And by January 1916, the campaign was called off and the Allied troops pulled out it was a total disaster and almost ruined churchill's political career he was torn apart in the british press and resigned as first lord of the admiralty in the fire pain and chaos of gallipoli the nation of australia was created and we just celebrated or australia and new zealand just celebrated anzac day uh april 25th women in the first world war For the first time in the industrial period, huge masses of men were taken away from jobs in factories, schools, hospitals, every walk of life. Women took their places, often encouraged by their national governments grappling with labor shortages. And I've got two posters here on the page showing government efforts to recruit women for the war effort in the United States on the left. uh, And I'm sorry, in the United Kingdom on the left on the page and the United States on the right. By the end of World War One, women comprised 20% of the United States industrial workforce in the aircraft manufacturing industry. For example, women went from less than 1% to 19% of the workers in only a year and a half. Many of those jobs were here in Los Angeles as well. These were good jobs. One person, a man or a woman could support a family on the high wages. We should only be so lucky today. However, after the war, women were removed from industrial jobs in favor of men returning from the war. This wasn't fair, as it had been the government who begged and pleaded for them to take these jobs. But employers assumed that men deserved jobs that could support whole families. And so women workers were fired so that men could have their jobs back. And this would happen again after World War II with women taking a major role in the affairs of the country and in the economy and then being expected to go home to assume domestic roles. Women took a large number of jobs on the home front, but were also in the thick of things down at the front as well. As we can see in this photo on the page of Elsie Knocker and Mary Chisholm, two British ambulance drivers whose main station was only 100 yards away from the battle line. We'll pause there on Purdy's podcast. When we come back we'll be diving into the next year of the war 1916. thanks and we'll talk to you soon on purdy's podcast welcome back to purdy's podcast we're talking about the first world war and here we go into 1916 a pivotal year in the war verdun in 1914 the germans had focused on france first according to the schlieffen plan that didn't win them the war In 1915, they stayed on defense in France and focused on Russia, and that didn't win them the war either. So at the start of 1916, the German general staff swung their attention back to France. The problem so far, the Germans saw, was was that they just hadn't made enough artillery shells to punch through the French defenses. Now they felt they had plenty. The Germans hoped to wear the French out in 1916, to bleed them white, was their phrasing by attacking a vital spot that the French would feel compelled to defend at all hazards. The Germans chose Verdun, which was a famous fortress in eastern France, famous because the Treaty of Verdun was signed there more than a thousand years ago, in the year 843, between the different factions of Charlemagne's old empire, carving out what would become later France and Germany. Verdun had long been a symbol of French military and national gloire, Germany didn't aim for a breakthrough at Verdun. They didn't imagine bursting through to Paris after taking this fortress. No, they just wanted to suck as many French troops into the area as possible and then blast them with artillery. They got the bloody battle they asked for. France lost 377,000 soldiers dead, wounded, and captured in a horrific slaughter, and the Germans just about the same amount as we'll discuss. The French famously declared, and pardon my, my pronunciation of things, on ne passe, pas." They shall not pass. And thanks to Marshal Pétain's employing the French cannon at all the right times, the Germans didn't pass. Verdun saw some of the grimmest fighting of the war, with French soldiers cut off from the rest of their army, but holding under terrific pressure, running out of water in desperate thirst, even drinking their own urine. Verdun was, Verdun was notable, bizarre, as many French soldiers died in the battle without ever seeing a German soldier. They just faced death from above, horrible artillery shells exploding at them. Verdun almost broke the French army, but the Germans suffered terribly as well, losing over 300,000 men. And the Germans couldn't afford to lose soldiers the way the Allies could. In the end, the Germans gained no lasting victory. The French army learned from Verdun that sitting back and tenaciously defending territory was much better than attacking. This belief would come back to bite them in World War II when the Germans just went around the fixed defenses of the Maginot Line in 1940. But that's a topic for a different story. The Somme. The British had started the war with a small army, but a massive recruiting drive led by Lord Kitchener of Fashoda fame pictured below on the page, brought millions of men under arms. With the French wobbling a bit under German pressure, the British started their own first big offensive. Their idea was similar to the German one at Verdun, bombard the enemy, the enemy with zillions of new artil- artillery shells. The British, though, hoped for a breakthrough on their front. Boom! went hundreds of British and French cannons and howitzers on July first, 1916, the first day of the Somme offensive, and then out of their trenches leaped the British, sure that the Germans had been pulverized. There was no way for the British to know, but the Germans were actually in good shape, not much harmed at all by that artillery fire. With their many machine guns, the Germans gunned down 57,000 British soldiers on the first day, along with 27,000 dead it would be like the whole city of gardena or or cupertino or huntington, or huntington park california was just wiped out in one single day the british had seen that day what they were up against but they kept slamming up against the stubborn german lines for four months and gained little to no ground Soldiers heading over the top against the stout German defenses knew they had a very good chance of being killed. Captain Charles May of the British 22nd Manchester Regiment wrote home to his wife Bessie and spared her no illusions about what his fate might be in battle. And Charles May wrote as follows in his letter I must not allow myself to dwell on the personal. There is no room for it here. Also, it is demoralizing. But I do not want to die. Not that I mind it for myself. If it be that I am to go, I am ready. But the thought that I may never see you or our darling baby again turns my bowels to water. I cannot think of it with even the semblance of equanimity. My one consolation is the happiness that has been ours. Also, my conscience is clear that I've always tried to make life a joy to you. I know at least that if I go, you will not want. That is something." But it is the thought that we we may be cut off from one another, which is so terrible, and that our babe may grow up without my knowing her and without her knowing me. It is difficult to face. And I know your life without me would be a dull blank, yet you must never let it become wholly so, for to you will be left the greatest charge in all the world, the upbringing of our baby. God bless that child. She is the hope of life to me. My darling, au revoir. It may well be that you will only have to read these lines as ones of passing interest. On the other hand, they may well be my last message to you. If they are, know through all your life that I loved you and baby with all my heart and soul, that you two sweet things were just all the world to me. I pray God I may do my duty, for I know, whatever that may entail, you would not have it otherwise. And Captain May is pictured below with Bessie and his daughter Pauline. He died the next day after the date of that letter in the Battle of the Somme. The British fired 7 million artillery shells at the Germans from July to November 1916 in the Somme campaign. So many shells that the Germans called it the Materialschlacht, or munitions offensive. This showed how strong Britain's economy was, that it could produce so much war material. Still, the Germans did not budge. On other fronts, 1916 was a year of almosts and might-have-beens in other parts of Europe. Austria nearly broke into Italy, out onto the plain near Venice, but were held out. Just barely. The Russians pounded Austria-Hungary with a huge offensive, losing 1.4 million soldiers in the process, but it was the same old song and dance. Whenever the Germans showed up to support the Austrians, they beat the Russians. Back home in Russia, the mood of the people was foul. Furious revolution seemed right around the corner, and Tsar Nicholas, who had led his armies personally directly in the field since 1915, had no one to blame but himself. And we'll pause there when we come back. We'll get into 1917. World War One grinds on, and the United States, still on the sidelines, finds reason to plunge in. We'll be back with Purdy's podcast. You're back on with Purdy's podcast, World War One. Let's talk about 1917. The United States enters the war. Most of the world's nations were neutral at the war's beginning, including the United States. By the end of the war, only a few European countries, Spain, Switzerland, Scandinavian countries, and Mexico, Chile and Argentina and South America were still neutral. Everyone else had jumped in like Italy or had been dragged in like the United States felt that it was. President Woodrow Wilson had barely won re-election in 1916 on the slogan, he kept us out of war. It was a popular message because Americans didn't want to get involved in this great war. The United States had nearly gone to war with Germany already. As on May 7th, 1915, a German submarine sank Her Majesty's ship Uh, Lusitania, a big passenger liner going from New York City to Liverpool, England, with nearly 1,200 people lost and 128 Americans among them. The ship had gone down in 18 minutes after the sub's torpedo struck it, with little chance to save many passengers. The Germans had had to do some very fast talking and apologizing. In particular, they promised to avoid unrestricted submarine attacks against unmarked or neutral vessels. The Germans pointed out that the Lusitania was carrying arms and ammunition for Britain from the United States. But this didn't make them seem any less guilty in American eyes. America still stayed out of the, out of the war, however, for two more years. But early in 1917, the Germans, feeling the tight British naval blockade, and with their people getting hungry and impatient, allowed their submarines unter sea boats to attack all ships in the North Atlantic that seemed capable of carrying war materials. Even if they were flying a neutral flag, immediately the American ships began to be attacked by submarines, and Wilson complained to the Germans. They didn't care, gambling that they would win the war before the U.S. could do anything about it. Wilson was ready to declare war of the submarines issue, but what really did the trick was the Zimmerman telegram. Mexico underwent a revolution and civil war from roughly 1910 until 1920. Revolutionary leaders like Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata sought constitutional reform, more democracy and more equitable equitable distribution of land to the common people. They met with many early successes. But when the conservative parties took control of the government, they were forced to flee and become rebels. To President Wilson, Pancho Villa was just a bandit, and he sent American troops under General Black Jack Pershing across the border to find and punish Pancho Villa with little success. Many of these these American officers and soldiers, including then Second Lieutenant George S. Patton, ended up fighting in France. A telegram from Arthur Zimmerman, a German diplomat to Mexico, was intercepted by British intelligence in January 1917 and they were psyched to intercept it. The telegram read as follows. We intended to begin on the 1st of February unrestricted submarine warfare. We shall endeavor in spite of this to keep the United States of America neutral. In the event of this not succeeding, we, Germany, make Mexico a proposal of alliance on the following basis. Make war together, make peace together, generous financial support, and an understanding on our part that Mexico is to reconquer the lost territory in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. I guess the Germans thought California would be too much to give back. I don't know. In any case, Zimmerman fessed up on March 3rd, 3rd, 1917 that the telegram was real, and the American press went ballistic. In a speech to a joint session of Congress on April 2nd, 1917, President Wilson asked Congress to declare war on Germany, and they did with the vote 82 to 6 in the Senate and 373 to 50 in the House. Unrestricted submarine warfare and the Zimmerman telegram are the two reasons given for American entry into the war. But that said, hey, always follow the money, class. The United States wasn't doing hardly any trade with the Central Powers, but was selling tremendous amount of domestic goods and war material to the Allies. Britain and France had borrowed many millions of dollars from American banks. The United States had invested a lot in the Allies' success. And Wilson powerfully didn't want to see Germany win. So many historians argue that it was always a done deal that the United States was coming in the war. Still, the U.S. had stayed out for two and a half crazy bloody years. If Germany had not given the U.S. these reasons for war, Wilson would have found it hard to make the case for it. As Winston Churchill points out in his 1923 book, The Great Crisis, if Russia had fallen to revolution just a little sooner, then the Germans would have felt more secure and probably not launched their submarine insanity. Without the submarine issue, the U.S. might not have have felt obliged to join the war at all. Now Russia and Italy in 1917... The Russians made a half-hearted offensive at the start of 1917, and then they just fell apart. In March and April 1917, two million Russian soldiers deserted. On March 15, 1917, Nicholas II abdicated, and a Republican government, a Democratic government, under Alexander Kerensky, pictured on the page, took over. Rather than pull Russia out of the war, Kerensky launched an idiotic new offensive. To show the world the new government was large and in charge but guess what happened it fell apart and the bolsheviks the communists and other factions took over the large cities and began a civil war against the new government and the supporters of the czar too a soviet painting of lenin returning to russia via a train provided by the germans paste that into the letter um, here on this page now the italians made an enormous push in the Caporetto offensive and were bloodily repulsed suffering 350,000 dead Italian and 750,000 wounded. It was another year of deadlock down in Italy. Ernest Hemingway's 1929 novel, a farewell to arms is about an American parademic paramedic involved in this offensive and vividly describes the horrific nature of the battle there as to France and the Western front in 1917 class. France couldn't take many more victories like Verdun. They were approaching exhaustion. A new commander, General Nivelle, convinced the country he had a new offensive strategy, but as always, the French got chewed up, trying to penetrate the German defenses. This deflated the French army, and over half the divisions, 68 out of 112, had some sort of mutiny, usually where soldiers refused to go back to the front after their rest leaves. It was not known for many years how serious these revolts were, but the French were close to collapse. In the end, 50 to 70 soldiers were executed for mutiny, but the message had been sent clearly to the generals. France attempted no major operations the rest of the year, waiting for the British to produce more tanks and for American reinforcements to arrive in France. Now look, if you're wondering what happened to the Tsar and his family, the British and the French refused to accept him as an exile. It seems unbelievable as he was just recently their close ally, but the war had become a war for democracy and the British and the French wanted nothing to do with the Romanovs and their monarchy. So Nicholas and his family were sent deep into central Russia with Kerensky planning to send them to Japan the next spring in 1918, but they never made it and were taken into Bolshevik custody. And later, summarily executed by the communists in cold blood the british tried to use their new tanks to overpower the germans in 1917 that summer but the problem was the tanks had a really hard time crossing ground that was full of deep holes caused by artillery shells so they weren't exactly any lightning fast operations no side could claim any advantage And this is why the utility, the usefulness of tanks, was underestimated based on the First World War. But the tanks are better in the Second World War, and it's a different story. 1917 ended up as a mixed bag. Britain and France were clinging on in the West for the Americans to arrive. The Russians were officially still in the war, but not working with the Western allies. And the Bolsheviks spent the fall of 1917 trying to solidify their rule. The Germans figured 1918 would be the year they'd win the war. The Americans were slow in getting to Europe, and France seemed super wobbly. Further, the Germans could look forward to bringing soldiers back from the Russian front to help in France. When we come back for our last segment on the First World War, we'll discuss the end game, 1918, the end of the war, and the peace treaty at Versailles that put a punctuation mark on it. And we'll be back with Purdy's podcast. podcast. Back on with Purdy's podcast in the last segment in this letter on the First World War and Versailles. 1918, the last year of the war, revealed a world transformed from the peaceful days of 1914. As Winston Winston Churchill wrote, before the war, it had seemed incredible that such terrors and slaughters, even if they began, could last more than a few months. After the first two years, it was difficult to believe they would ever end we seemed separated from the old life by a measureless gulf Russia checks out the Germans attacked Russia in February 1918 and in two weeks had crushed the weak resistance in front of them Lenin and the Bolsheviks sought peace at any cost and it came with a big cost their peace treaty with German with Germany um, signed by Germany and the new Soviet Union in March 1918 Granted, Finland, Poland, Lithuania, and Ukraine their independence and left Germany in control of 90% of Russia's coal, 50% of its industrial base, and 30% of its former population. This peace was exactly the kind of result that that later in World War II, Hitler hoped for. Germany's territorial aims in the East during both world wars were the same. The difference between the Kaiser's Germany in World War I and Hitler's Germany in World War II was that the Nazis sought to exterminate Jews and Slavs and conquered territories, not just rule over them, but wipe them out. In 1918, the Germans were so enthusiastic about ruling Russia's former territory that they left a million soldiers as an occupation army, even though they were desperately needed in France. With the Soviet Union out of the war, many scholars have asked why Germany didn't just sit back and let the British, French, and Americans kill themselves on their defenses, while Germany developed all of the goodies they'd stolen from Russia, the coal, factories, farms. With all of this new stuff, perhaps Germany could have fed their people, beating the purpose of the British blockade. Maybe they could have won the war. However, the generals were running Germany, and they were running the war, They fixed their bayonets and marched west in spring 1918, hoping to beat the Allies before the U.S. could build up its army. The war's end. The Germans were desperate to win the war while they still could. The blockade was causing shortages of food and domestic goods in Germany. Workers were going on strike for higher wages. Industrial output was down 30% from the beginning of the war in may they got within 40 miles of paris just like in 1914 this time though in 1918 americans were at the front and together with the french they stopped the germans cold at the second battle of the marne general pershing relaxed a little bit and allowed american units to be placed into the line with the french rather than to be entirely under an independent american command and this flexibility helped to save paris and the war Some of the bravest service done and most fierce fighting and courageous fighting was done by African-American units serving with the French. Below is a photo on the page in the letter of the 369th Infantry Division with their Croix de Guerre medals awarded to them by France for service in the final campaigns of World War I. They fought pretty much nonstop from June to November 1918 and took more casualties than any other regiment in the American Expeditionary Force. Once the Germans had been stopped, the Allies then moved forward on a very wide front using new tactics of combined arms, where artillery, tanks, planes, and soldiers were all coordinated. By the middle of September, the Allies were at the Germans' most important defense, the Hindenburg Line, and German resistance was cracking. German aviators, were running out of fuel for their planes. The German high seas fleet was mutinying. The other Central Powers were all seeking peace, and more and more American soldiers were coming across the Atlantic. Kaiser Wilhelm abdicated and fled to the Netherlands on November 10, 1918. The Allies and Germans agreed to an armistice in a meeting of representatives in a railway car. There's a photo below with hostilities ending on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. Most of the soldiers on both sides were ecstatic, as can be seen in the photo below of soldiers getting the good news from one of their officers. British Lieutenant Richard Dixon, of the 251st Battery, 53rd Brigade, Royal Artillery, found out by his captain yelling at him, the bloody war's over, it's over. Dixon remembered thinking, No more slaughter, no more maiming, no more mud and blood, no more killing and disemboweling of horses and mules, no more of those hopeless dawns with the rain chilling the spirits, no more crouching and inadequate dugouts scooped out of trench walls, no more dodging snipers' bullets, no more of that terrible shell fire, no more shoveling up of bits of men's bodies and dumping them into sandbags, no more cries of stretcher bearers no more of those beastly gas masks and the odious smell of pear drops, which were deadly to the lungs, and no more writing of those dreadfully difficult letters to the next of kin of the dead. And Private Ernest Breck of the French 77th Infantry Regiment recalled, damn, a wave of joy swept over us. I don't know if I had tears in my eyes. Like the others, I must have shouted, Vive la France! For a moment we were all left breathless with happiness. Great sorrow is silent. So too is great joy. Then the shock passed. We recovered our power of speech, and with it the reflex common to all Frenchmen. We'll have a toast to that. Yes, but with what? There was no red wine in this poor little place. Just a bottle of lousy sparkling wine, Bebert, dug up in a shop where the bastard made us pay 15 francs we split it 16 ways hardly enough to wet your whistle so the war was over the peace treaty of, Versa- of versailles followed among the wreckage of the first world war were full were four old empires the russian german austro-hungarian and ottoman a bunch of brand new countries came out of them including finland estonia latvia lithuania poland czechoslovakia Yugoslavia, Albania. Nearly all of the new countries were democratic, but that was the new fashion in Europe, as the United States, Britain, Italy, France, all democracies had won the war. Monarchies were out of style. President Wilson had promised self-determination for all peoples, whatever that meant. Wilson purposefully did not give it a a specific definition, and this inspired the oppressed everywhere, including, interestingly, Ho Chi Minh, the future leader of North Vietnam, later the Unified Vietnam, after he died, who was a young man at the time living in Paris at the time of the Versailles negotiations. Ho Chi Minh, pictured below as an unofficial representative from the French colony of Indochina, petitioned the Allies for help in ending French colonial rule over Indochina. But Wilson ignored him. Fifty years later, the United States was knee-deep in the quagmire of the Vietnam War. The South African Native National Congress, the predecessor to Nelson Mandela's African National Congress, also petitioned the allies for greater rights and freedoms for South Africans. The colonial peoples of the world were hearing about all of these freedoms promised by the allies, and they wanted their share. For the first time in American history, an American president spent an extended period of time abroad working on international issues. Each allied representative wanted something different. Number one, President Wilson wanted an easy peace for Germany based on his 14 points. But two, the 80-year-old French president, Georges Clemenceau, bitterly remembered two ruinous German invasions in his lifetime, 1817 and 1914, and wanted Germany humbled and weakened so much that France would not be invaded again. Third, Prime Minister Lloyd George of the United Kingdom swung back and forth between Wilson and Clemenceau, but wanted Germany to recover quickly so that British companies could trade with German companies. Britain, which had spent much of the gold in its treasury, wanted above all else to get the world economy moving again. Italy just wanted certain Austrian territories, especially Fiume. A port in modern day Croatia, but perhaps because Prime Minister Vittorio Orlando spoke little English, he was ignored, and Italy was ignored and treated more like a losing power than one of the big four. And I've pictured Lloyd George, Orlando, Clemenceau, and Wilson. The Allies found it very difficult to follow President Wilson's wish for national self determination for all peoples. For example, Three million Germans remained in the new Czechoslovakia, and this would cause big problems in the 1930s. As Hitler argued, they should be in a greater Germany. This is only one of the seeds planted at Versailles that grew up to be poisonous problems in later years. Italy felt like it was treated as a losing country. Japan was an ally but felt ignored and marginalized. China is also an ally, but was worried that the Western allies would allow Japan to take virtual control of it and all of Asia. All of the losing countries, Hungary, Austria, Germany, were upset that they'd lost important lands. French troops occupied the Rhineland, so Germany's western frontier would be the, the Rhine River. But in the area that they occupied, everybody was German and spoke German. And of course, France took Alsace and Lorraine back, thank you very much. There's terrible resentment between France and Germany still. Germans had only agreed to the armistice because they thought peace would be based on the fair and relatively easy 14 points. They felt betrayed by what they considered a punitive peace. But perhaps the most enraging part of the Versailles Treaty for Germans was Article 231, popularly called the War Guilt Cause, which placed all of the blame for World War I on Germany and the other central powers. The Allies gave the Germans a huge reparations bill and expected prompt and quick payment. German resentment of this war guilt clause was a major reason the Nazis and Hitler came to power. Their major campaign promise as Nazis was that they would tear up the Versailles Treaty. The ancient Greeks tell us that after Pandora's box had been opened, letting escape all the evils of the world, one thing remained at the bottom of the box, hope. So it was with Versailles. A cause for hope at Versailles was the creation of the League of Nations, which opened up with 48 members in January 1920. The League was President Wilson's idea, and he thought it would guarantee world peace. The rest of the world thought it had a chance, but that the United States would have to be the main member for it to work well. Back in the U.S., however, the Senate, led by the anti-Wilson Republican majority, voted down the Versailles Treaty and the League in in November 1919. President Wilson had suffered a stroke that summer, probably from overwork, and couldn't give his all to selling the idea to the Senate and the people. The United States never joined the League of Nations, and so it never functioned as as it was intended. It's a bitter irony of history that this American idea came to life without actual American participation. Believe me, class, that's why after World War II, the United Nations building was placed in New York City. The world wanted to be certain the U.S. would join the U.N. and stay in it for good. You've been on with Purdy's Purdy's podcast for this episode about World War I and the Treaty of Versailles. Thank you so much, and I'll see you on the next episode.